Welcome to this special holiday edition of Design Driven. Recording the show was a lot of fun, and you'll hear why as we get into it. This episode is great not just because it was recorded in person, but because of who the guests are and the special chemistry that we all share. We recorded it at a villa in the North Georgia mountains during Web Whiskey Weekend, a getaway for people who love the web. This kind of conversation was happening the entire time, so we decided to capture some of it for you. If you like what you hear, you should consider joining us at the next event. Details are at webwhiskeyweekend.com. My guests are Jonathan Snook, Gina, and Greg Story. All of them have been designing things for the web and leading the community towards better design for nearly two decades. Snook is well known for his work with CSS. He's written several books, spoken at literally hundreds of conferences, and helped thousands of people through his blog posts and generous contributions to many projects. He's worked at Yahoo, Shopify, Zero, and done private consulting for a lot of other companies you've heard of. And being from Canada, he's one of the nicest people you'll ever meet. Gina has been a prolific designer, blogger, and community leader for well over 15 years. She's led the SAS project, runs a design systems conference called Clarity, and manages the design system community on Slack. She's worked at Apple, Salesforce, GitHub, Amazon, and several other leading tech companies. She's a world traveler, whiskey aficionado, and lover of sushi and robots. Greg created Airbag Industries, one of the very first websites I ever saw and thought, wow, websites don't have to look like crap. He created a style that you just didn't see back then, which inspired a lot of people to make their websites look great too. And if that wasn't enough, his writing has always been insightful, entertaining, and a bit provocative in the best possible way. He's run small agencies like Airbag and Happy Cog, and worked for giants like IBM and USAA. He has a keen understanding of the business side of design and is always generous with his knowledge. Plus, he makes one of the best Manhattans you'll ever taste. This episode is longer than normal, but that's because we cover a lot of ground. We talk about how design works in big companies and small ones, how you can continue to improve as a designer, what you look to for inspiration, and all kinds of stuff. I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as we did recording it. And with that, let's get to the show. This is Design Driven, the podcast about using design thinking to build great products and lasting companies. Whether you're running a startup or trying something new inside of Fortune 1000, the tools, methods, and insights we talk about will help you create things people love. Design Driven is brought to you by Nine Labs, guiding innovators and product teams through executing their vision. Find out more at NineLabs.com. And now, your host, Jay Cornelius. Um, we're here with Greg and a silent snook and Gina. And Greg is telling us a story about Southwest Airlines. Yeah. Um, this is on the How I Built This podcast. You heard about the? No. No. Um, so it's a great podcast because it, it tells the origin story essentially of well-known brands and shops and things that you and I, uh, we all use all the time. Anyway, so Southwest Airlines, to at one point, to be competitive, uh, they were giving away bottles of whiskey for a per round trip flight, you know, so if you, in, instead of going the com- competitors, the you'd entire actually, bottle, the entire bottle. Yeah. And I, as I recall, this could be wrong, but as I recall, you got the bottle of whiskey as you boarded the, the plane. 
Um, so I'm sure those are some lively flights back then. <laughs> <laughs> Did the, and, and free mixers? <laughs> no. <laughs> Just straight whiskey. It's Texas those, back in the 70s those were or twice right. the 60s. So, was, yeah. this the, was this Herb Kelleher telling the story? I think, yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah, yeah he's, he's kind of an interesting guy. So uh, more formally... This is the Web Whiskey Weekend edition of the Design Driven Podcast. I'm here with Greg Story and Gina Ann, as we call Gina these days. <laughs> uh, we'll put all the other info about who they are in the, sh- in the show notes. Uh, we are in Big Canoe, Georgia, way up in the mountains at a fantastic villa. We've got uh, about 20 people and 50 or so unique bottles of whiskey from all over the world. Just hanging out, having some good food, and enjoying each other's company and telling stories. So we figured we'd record some of it, and here we are. So um, to get started, how about each of you just give us a little bit of background on what you're doing, where you're working, how you got there, and what's uh, what do you think is interesting these days? Uh, yeah, so uh, I'm Gina, and I'm currently a consultant. I'm doing some work with Amazon right now. Uh, prior to that, I was at Salesforce for five and a half years. I was the lead designer in the Lightning Design System. Uh, before that, worked at places like Apple, GitHub, Engineered, and so on. So, kind of done a little bit of everything. <laughs> and I'm Greg. Uh, currently work at USA uh, as an executive design director. Uh, prior to that, worked at IBM Design, and then owned my own studio uh, for ten years. Uh, one point it was. Called Airbag, and at the point it was called Happy Cog. Very nice. Uh, so, what are you working on these days? That's, that's exciting. I mean, you're Greg. You're in Austin, mm-hmm. right? And Gina, you're in San Francisco. Yep. And I'm in Atlanta. So we have three time zones covered. Um, but what are you working on that's interesting? I uh, so I just really started my role just a couple of months ago. Um, I'm trying to take uh, a bunch of designers who. Uh, later earlier this year were taken from different departments and put into what's called the chief design office. Uh, so we've got a bunch of folks who have never worked together before. They've never worked in kind of the same way before. Um, and I've got, uh, I'd say around 25 people that I've got to turn into a well-oiled design machine uh, before too long. Um, so that's my focus right now is getting to know the business, getting to know the the rhythms and the the cadence of the different um, uh, agile teams that we work with, uh, and and trying to determine where we are with skills, design systems, you know, all all of the things design related. Wow, is that on um, like dot com or the mobile app or any specific focus? Uh, it's it's on all of the things. Uh, my my particular focus is on our investment products. Uh, so, uh, insurance products, annuities, that type of thing. Um, uh, I essentially head of design for what's called FASG financial advice services group. Uh, and, uh, we do everything pretty much, but the, the banking or like auto insurance that's, that's, there are other groups that handle that kind of stuff. Nice. So unlikely I'll see your stuff. Yes. Yeah. I've been a USAA member for 20 something years, I think. And oh yeah. Yeah. It's fantastic. Okay. Uh, I just don't use any of the investment stuff. Got it. But maybe I should now. Yes, you should. Because it'll, it'll be beautiful. Yeah. Gina, I know you can't talk too much about what you're working on because it's like top secret uh, <laughs> Area 51 stuff. But uh, what what are you working on uh, maybe in the conference world that's exciting? Yeah. So I have a conference called Clarity. It's at the end of November and it's sold out, which is really exciting. 
Uh, about 330-ish people are going to be coming from all over the world to geek out about design systems, which is really rad. Um, I've also been doing some meetups. So I have the <coughs> San, uh, San Francisco Design Systems Coalition uh, where we go around to different companies that host and do a sort of a show and tell about the unique challenges that they're facing with design systems. And it's already got a New York chapter, a London chapter. It looks like one in Chicago starting and even one in Finland, which is pretty cool. Wow. So, yeah. We're podcasting. Shh. Uh, that's Let's Zach. leave that in. That's Zach in the background. <laughs> so uh, you're kind of all over the design system space. You have a Slack? Yeah, I have a Slack with about... 4,800 people, I think, uh, last I checked. Um, I just started a Medium publication. Um, that's kind of the nature of the consulting I'm doing right now. Like, it's, yeah, it's kind of, you know, my world right now. <laughs> yeah, so th um, between the two of you, uh, I would imagine there's a pretty um, dense amount of knowledge around how to not just create a design system, but the business reasons to use a design system, mm -hmm. how you can use those types of tools to, to build um, more efficient teams, maybe even happier teams. Mm -hmm. um, what, what have you seen in terms of like what happens when you implement a design system? What, what, what happens for the business? What happens for the team? What happens for the product? Well, I'm, so <clears throat> I'll let you know, uh, you know, once I get into this particular role, uh, where the actual work I'll do, uh, or I'll do, I do day by day, uh, eventually will lead to the implementation of a design system. But I'd say, uh, outside of all of the groups and the reasons, you know, why you should do this, uh, for me, it's more about the users and making sure that they've got a consistent experience. Um, I think, Jeannie, you probably have seen this a couple of times where mm -hmm. you start taking inventory of, all, all your digital assets and you find that, you know, we've got 33 different button styles yep. and, um, uh, we've got uh, five or six different flows. Um, and I think that from what I, I've heard and, and can tell from USAA, um, we've got a lot of work cut out for ourselves. Um, but, uh, that's, that's kind of where my head is at is, you know, not only can we make happy designers and happy developers and whatnot, but how do we make, uh, even more, uh, happy users? Mm -hmm. Totally agree with that. Um, actually, I, I just wrote a, a medium post about design systems are for people. And it's about remembering the whole reason while we're doing this in the first place. And it's totally exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Keeping it human centered. Exactly. Mm -hmm. yep. Yeah. Yeah. So um, as you've you know, like the career trajectory, like if we look back um, <laughs> to the was it like early 90s or, or mid 90s, probably when mm -hmm. we got involved, like Gina, I know you've been making stuff for many, many years. What, what's changed and what stayed the same? Oh man. Uh. Well, everything and, and almost like sometimes it feels like nothing, but yeah. we were just talking about this earlier with our, uh, audience of one. Um, <laughs> Well, uh, we should bring Snook in. I feel bad because he because <laughs> just shouts we from across. Well, the room. so I, I brought all the gear up from the office, and one of our microphones just died. Like it just—it's another one, like like the ones you guys are using, and and it just didn't work. It won't come on anymore. So oh. I planned to actually have capacity for for Mister Snook, but okay. it didn't work out. But we could always slide over one yeah. of these fancy uh, part, tripods part we have and and uh, get slide him in the conversation. Into this microphone. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but we were just talking about how how you know. Uh, 
a lot of things have changed about how we make things. Um, I'd say to some degree, a little bit of why, you know, I don't know that human centered design was there in the beginning. I don't know that I ever talked about, you know, designing for the users back in the early nineties or mid nineties. It was more of just, uh, let's make a cool thing and we can do it on this new platform. Right. Um, but the way we go about doing that, the way that we even run design development deployment, uh, I mean that all that has just completely changed. Yeah. Long gone are the days of FTPing into the server to upload our files. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thankfully. I yeah. miss those days kind of, though, I have to admit. <laughs> yeah, I do too. Yeah. So Snook, now that you're in the mix, um, give everybody kind of a little bit of background on, on what you're doing, uh what you've been doing. Uh who are you? What are you working on? What do you what's interesting? Yeah, so um well, I'm Jonathan Snook. Uh, most people most people call me by my last name Snook. And um I uh, have most recently been doing some client work, um doing front end design and development. Before that, uh worked for an accounting software based out of New Zealand called Zero, X E R O, and before that worked at Shopify. Uh these days I'm doing a lot of conference speaking, so I just spoke at CSS DevConf and uh coming up we'll be speaking at Beyond Telerand in uh Berlin. Oh nice. Well, and before Shopify it was Yahoo and, yeah, and Apple Yahoo and, and yeah, did some agency work and did some freelance before that. Uh worked for, you know, companies like Red Bull and whatnot. So I've I've had a, a long career uh, and a good career. So looking back on that, um, what do you feel uh, you enjoy most? And like, what are some of the big lessons and takeaways? It's, um, the, uh, wow, it's, let me rephrase this. One why why do you keep doing this? Do you see you the do? white hairs in that beard? <laughs> <laughs> this could be a three hour long podcast. Right, yeah, so that, that question alone um, has many layers. It, uh, I mean, part of the, for me, I, I've always enjoyed the creation aspect of web develop, web, wow. I, I, you know, we may have already had, I may have already had way too many, uh, <laughs> too much whiskey, whiskey, uh, web development, uh, is the, uh, the, yeah, the creation process, the idea of being able to, uh, quickly make something and put it out to such a large audience quickly. Um, that has always been really enticing to me. Yeah, I, I, I haven't thought about that in a long time. Yeah, like when you think of print, like or or any sort of physical product, mm-hmm. th- there's a lot of uh, build up to creating that product. Um, but with the web, you know, this idea that I can make a website and the entire world, you know, as long as they've got access to a device, can hop online and see my thing. Um, and you know, having when you work on an op- uh, when you have an opportunity to work on something like Yahoo, um, and you know when they've got like 300 million users, mm-hmm. that that's pretty cool to just like release something and have 300 million people using your thing. Right. It's, it's kind of a um, daunting responsibility at the same time, right? I guess I've never really looked at the daunting aspect of it. Um, if somebody you know uh, has problem accessing uh, their email for an hour. I feel like it's not the end of the world um, compared to like a doctor where 
you know, it's literally a life and death. And uh, I actually used to work with um, uh, a salesperson who would constantly say, like, you know, we're uh, no babies are being killed with the work we're doing. And, uh, you know, as maybe as morbid as that is, there's not a lot on the line. Like, we get to build this cool stuff. We get to put it out into the world. And uh, there's not uh, sort of this life and death situation. Um, so, you know, there's not... Uh, you know, I have a responsibility to build a good product. I want, you know, the, my reputation is on the line. Um, the, the company that I work for, I want them to, to do well. I want the people around me to uh, be excited about the stuff that they're working on. Um, you know, there's all these sort of layers um, on that. Uh, but yet, at the end of the day, that, you know, that we've built something that we're all proud of. Um, that we're all excited to come in the next day and make even better. Um, and the fact that we get to do that so quickly, um, that we don't have this long ramp up time to get this stuff out into the world to me is the exciting part. You know, it's the, the daunting part too, right? Uh, if something goes wrong, um, you know, we, we talked about process earlier. I feel like the, our processes now help catch a lot of things that would have been problems, you know, back in the early days. Yep. And two, it's it's still it's digital, right? Um, when I was younger and used to do uh, print work, you know, if you made a mistake, uh, it was printed, like it, it was. Uh, yeah, it was shipped. It was out. Right, you couldn't change it. Yeah, you couldn't yeah. couldn't go back. Um, and uh, whereas digital, at least, uh, you know, make changes, redeploy, should be all good. You know, hopefully, um, I wouldn't want to be a systems engineer in this day and age. No. Right. Or, you know, the guys that have to keep the websites up and, and right. maintain that uptime. Yeah. No, I, no, I wouldn't actually, I wouldn't want to do that in any day and age. <laughs> uh, we, we had an interesting conversation at breakfast about um, like the next interface. Mm. Uh, we're so used to doing everything through screens and keyboards and mice and, and pointing devices. And now we've got, you know, Alexa and Google home and all these other things and Siri and that's pushing us into a different type of interaction with machines. Mm-hmm. So what what do you guys see as you know, the future for, for our industry and our specific discipline when it comes around to designing interaction systems for, for humans? Uh, well, to me, to me, I feel like there's a whole other layer here of things we have to be careful about letting these systems do. You know, so for instance... Um, uh, why it was just last year where one of our friends brought an Amazon dot to this very event. And <laughs> uh, at two in the morning, some activity ensued that where strangers were able to put some interesting things on that guy's wish list. Yep. Right. Um, now imagine that's tied to a bank account or, uh, you know, controlling devices in a home or even, you know, remote. Um, that's what I think of is, is all the additional kind of security or, or steps that are going to have to be involved in that kind of, uh, experience. Yeah. There's a lot more edge cases to think about, right? Yeah. 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 Um, I don't know if you've seen the new echo show. Mm-mm. So, um, some friends of mine have, they each have it and they work very closely together. They have for years. So they have a, you know, an implicit trust. So they each have it in their home. And one of them can say, hey, drop in on Rick. And then the one that's in Rick's kitchen just fires up and she can see like what's happening at Rick's house. Hey, Rick, are you home? Are you cooking some food? What's going on? Right. Or, hey, where are the dogs? Like what's happening? Just like like video call kind like of thing. Like instant, instant video into somebody else's house 
at your demand. Like they don't even have to authorize the call. It just That's happens. That's kind of creepy. <laughs> it, it is kind of creepy. I mean, it's kind of cool yeah. at the same time, but it, it's also kind of creepy. And at the same time, I'm re-listening to 1984. I'm mm. like, that is, that's the telescreen. Yeah. Right? There it is. And we're, and we're voluntarily paying money and putting it, installing it ourselves in our own homes. Well, I mean, it, it's also just as a user in that situation, you got to really think that through because you think, hey, we're best friends. What could go wrong? Right? Like what, what yeah. might, and you maybe forget like, oh yeah, at 6.30 in the morning, I probably don't have pants on while I'm walking to the kitchen or whatever. You know, it's some, something that would just, uh, you didn't think that through enough, right? Yeah. Well, and then, you know, there's the whole hacking thing too. Mm-hmm. Like if somebody can instantly request video access into your home on demand, mm-hmm. if someone gets access to that system and then can instantly access video for every one of those users anywhere in the world, that becomes a pretty interesting um, manipulative tool for them. Yeah, there was a great episode of uh, Black Mirror, uh, a show that just every episode seems to be uh, uh, really depressing, um, <laughs> uh, which uh, – and there was an episode where, yeah, the, the, you know, this guy was on his computer um, caught looking at something that he shouldn't be because his computer was hacked. Um, so they had him on video. They were able to find his phone number. And uh, and then the sort of the episode uh, goes on from there. And so, yeah, you can definitely see how – you know, uh, nefarious actors take control of these devices and the, the kind of havoc that they can, um, you know, put on, on these people. Um, that's, it's kind of scary. Yeah. Yes. It doesn't that put our field as designers in kind of an interesting, um, interesting situation where we have to think about all these other types of, of possibilities that we never had to think about before possibilities and liabilities. Sure. Right. Both. Yeah. Um, it'll be interesting to see where design's responsibility begins and ends. Uh, and what I mean by that is, uh, and some of the companies I've worked for now, it's not the, it's not designer's responsibility, um, but it's the, what would be like a product manager, or the experience owner's uh, responsibility. Like if, if something goes wrong, it's on them legally. Right. Um, yeah. 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 And, who's culpable? Right. Right. Yeah. And that'll be interesting to see is, you know, as time goes by and we've got more of these devices, that type of thing, is it really just going to be one person or like an entire team uh, that would include design? That's kind of, I almost feel like that's a U.S. culture thing. Like, oh, yeah. Who, who, who is liable yeah. for these types of things? Like, if I don't lock my front door and somebody robs my place, do you go, well, you know, should have locked your door? Right, like you made it too easy for people to rob you. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, well, I know I didn't have bars on my window. Like, it is the yeah, where do you draw that line? Yeah, where do you draw that line? Yeah. You know, that the, there's somebody on the other side that still performed the the act. Sure, um, you know, obviously there is still that design aspect. You know, that when when we technology has a, a habit of anonymizing things, and when things are anonymous. Um, uh, people, you know, are unfortunately nastier than they should be. And, uh, you know, we obviously see this in a lot of our, uh, our day-to-day lives with things like Twitter and Facebook, uh, where people take advantage of that anonymity, uh, which is unfortunate. Um, but yes, I mean, I think as designers, we need to think about it, you know, how to sort of keep people, um, being honest, 
to, mm-hmm. you know, to promote a culture, uh, amongst us that, uh, doesn't say, Hey, you know, you left your door open. I'm allowed to come in and take anything I want. Um, you know, there's, there is still that responsibility on, on us as designers. Sure. Well, and if we listen to, to, uh, Jared, everyone's a designer, right? <laughs> so, like, <laughs> which makes the line even blurrier. Yeah. Not my fault. <laughs> that guy's fault over there. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Just, I mean, the, the, I mean, from, from an experience perspective. Yeah. I mean, everybody is involved in crafting that experience. Sure. Um, from, from the sysops people, you know, if they, if they can't keep the servers up, that affects the user experience. Uh, from, you know, how people interact with the site, user experience, performance. Yeah. Like, Hey, sure. It might look great, but if I'm using, you know, three megs worth of JavaScript and CSS libraries and whatnot, that affects the user experience. Like all of this stuff affects the experience. Yeah. Even the attorney that says what text can be on a button. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. You're talking about things that change. That's one thing that I, I don't like, and that is everybody being a quote designer. Yeah. Um, you know, back in my day, um, <laughs> if I could be the old old guy, uh, you know, that to me that that meant something. I, I feel like to some degree, being a designer, being a designer. You know, actually having needing talents to make something look good, function good. You know, a pleasing experience. That's what design. I was going to say used to mean it probably means that now, but it's more inclusive of other people, right? We've taken that and, and said, it's not just one person's job. It's all of our jobs to design the experience. But I yeah. do miss, I miss being a designer and the person next to me isn't right. They're, um, they're a developer an engineer, project manager, whatever. Um, but I miss being the designer in the room. Yeah. So that's kind of a, I don't know the terminology for, it, but it seems like there's a bit of like responsibility creep, right? So because there are more people who have a like a, a tangible impact on the outcome of the experience that somebody has, there's more people that are involved in that process. Mm-hmm. It's not down to just the one designer in the room anymore, right? It's true, right? Like yeah. there's not that single decision maker yep. like there used to be, and if that single decision maker exists, they're somewhere different in the chain. Mm-hmm. And so how is that influencing the quality and the usability of the products we're putting out? Well, I'm, I think that, uh, you know, when we look at sort of old processes. I think some of this is just a recognition of what didn't work well. Like the, the idea of sort of it was their responsibility and therefore n- not taking into account um, sort of that personal responsibility to build a good product. Um, and so by bestowing this stuff onto other people, that sort of responsibility creep, uh, is really just an effort to say, listen, you know, your job here matters, you know, that these things matter. You need to bring it to everybody's attention. You need to pay attention to these things, um, as opposed to, uh, yeah, this, this isn't my job. This isn't what I do. Therefore, somebody else's, it's their fault. Right. Right. Gina, you've worked in some pretty big organizations. What have you seen in terms of how teams work together and uh, the quality or, or um, just how do you measure you know, the, the quality of the product that comes out of that? Uh, that's a good question. <laughs> um, I, I will say what I've seen in the past, just from the past teams I've been on, is uh, when a team is uh, 
cross-functional, like a hybrid team of designers and developers. Sometimes the people themselves are hybrid people. I think um, I've seen those teams succeed quicker and work better together. Um, unfortunately, in the past, I've seen where um, I was the only designer on the team of engineers. And, uh, you know, you kind of become a bottleneck in a way, but at the same time, uh, you do kind of feel proud of like, you know, like I own this experience, like I'm making the decisions. Um, and that can like, uh, it can work pretty well in certain contexts, but, uh, in one of the more recent contexts I was in, um, the team was a hybrid team and then was, uh, slowly over time, uh, turned into just an engineering team. And, uh, that did not work out so well for me. How did that happen? Uh, a lot of leadership change and, uh, decisions made to separate the teams out by discipline. And as a hybrid person, people usually don't know where to put me. (laughs) And, uh, yeah, so that can, that can be detrimental in in my personal opinion. Like, I, I think you should keep teams, uh, cross functional. Um, it's nice to be the only designer at times, but it can also hurt you too. Sure. Do do you think that's true regardless of the size of the organization? No, like in smaller startups, I didn't have a problem with it. Like, you know, usually you pair up with a developer and you create really cool stuff. It's usually the larger teams, larger companies that have had this problem. Oh yeah. Because if the, if the scale is off, right? So if you've got one designer to 30 developers, uh, that designer is being put in a situation where they, they cannot win, right? Yeah. They, they can't keep up. They can't jump ahead. They can't do their best work. I mean, yeah. it's just yeah. the list goes on and on. And that's why you have uh, companies like IBM and uh, others that are trying to get to some kind of uh, parity mm-hmm. to more design driven companies like Apple, right? That has one designer per four engineers. And that's a pretty outrageous scale. Right. That's, that's a, a big commitment to design on Apple's part that most companies, uh, you know, probably can't afford, wouldn't know what to do with whatnot. But, but, uh, yeah, but looking at the PL, it seems to work. Uh, well, it works for them. <laughs> you, you know, <laughs> right. Um, I don't well, know yeah, that you could take that model and say, Hey, Samsung, go hire the same amount of people, same amount of right. designers, same amount of right. engineers. Would you, you know, would their PL look the same as Apple? Well, because it's not about that the number; it's more it's more of a qualitative measurement. Sure, right? yeah. So you, um, when you were at IBM, you were working on building design teams and building mm-hmm. people to build design teams. Mm-hmm. So, what was the approach that you saw working there, and what what didn't work? Um, so let me start with what what I think didn't work, or what I would like to see an evolution of. And I know that they're they're still working through this, mm-hmm. um, but there were two ways that we would onboard designers and it depended on where you were in life uh, as to which, which kind of onboarding experience did you have? So if you were coming out of uh, school uh, of any, any kind of school, you went through what was called design boot camp, And that was a three month experience uh, where your first day, um, your first three months at IBM were in design boot camp, completely removed from product teams, I shouldn't say completely, but pretty much removed from who you would end up working with. And you'd be working on special projects that were related to IBM products and services. Um, but all along the way, you were uh, taught a lot of things about professional development, uh, you know, how to, how to just work within IBM, um, you know, little things, even like how to schedule a, a meeting, you know, that type mm-hmm. of thing. 
if you came from what they called industry, um, my onboarding experience was uh, two days of kind of setting up your computer and doing the calendar thing, and then two days of design thinking, uh, essentially training. You know, so you have this wide gap between new employees where if you came out of college, you had three months of that kind of training, you know, design thinking and running through projects and, and, uh, you know, using different tools and techniques to develop empathy, develop better products, uh, work with your users. Um, where, you know, again, if, if you're industry, you got, I don't know, like a Costco sample of that, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, what, two, two days you don't get to go through very much. Was the thinking that you had enough experience from being in industry that you didn't need that more intensive boot camp? Yeah, that's, that's my, yeah, I think so. That's my guess. Um, but you know, again, uh, learning kind of a proprietary design thinking system, uh, even if you've done some of those exercises, you know, doing it in the way that IBM does. And, and of course, not a lot of people are actually, uh, you know, using design thinking as, as much as I'd say places like IBM are, you know, where it's like, like everybody's using it. Right. Uh, so if they came from Deloitte or something, they, you know, they'd have, really no reference point for the way things were done within IBM. Yeah. I mean, I was, my head was spinning, uh, first couple of weeks, especially in those two days of that training, because, uh, we did, a, we did some UX exercises, uh, but you know, I owned my own studio. I didn't, I didn't do the day-to-day work. Um, and now here's this entirely new framework, uh, that, you know, I, I need to learn and, and try to pick up a yeah. new language, you know, for, for how to do work. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Cause you at Happy Cog and, and Airbag, I guess before that, your focus was partially in the business, but mostly on the business, on the mm-hmm. business side of things, talking to clients and managing stuff more yep. than, than working um, directly with the product. Yep. Right. Yep. So that transition was difficult because why? Um, getting back into product after being on the, on the business yeah, side. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and, and again, I, I think it was more of um, being responsible for the, um, I don't call it day-to-day operation, being responsible for the implementation of the design thinking, you know, of, of these proprietary um, frameworks. And I know they're not super proprietary. It's not like IBM's got their, you know, it's completely unique, but it's unique enough and important enough to them uh, that it's, it's, you know, just complete role change to some degree. Yeah. And that's got to be difficult for, uh, for people to kind of pick up on. Yes. Especially in two days. <laughs> so did you go through that two-day thing and then had to teach people to oh, yeah. get through how the So I went through the two-day thing. thing. Fortunately for me, my, my early role there was to, uh, as you said, to form and, and create design, you know, teams of designers. So my, uh, in my job, as part of that design boot camp, the, the longer three-month experience, um, I would stand up uh, teams of anywhere from six to eight designers uh, and we would go through a six week sprint on, uh, like a next generation thing for IBM, uh, you know, from, from start to finish where in the, in the day one, you didn't know anything about the industry. You didn't know anything about the vertical that we were going to be working in, let alone you had some idea of the IBM product maybe. Um, but pretty much going from a blank slate to developing, a uh, user and market validated prototype that could be used as the North star for that, uh, that IBM business unit. Wow. Yeah. That's a pretty short period of time to try to yeah. get all that. It was a lot head. of fun though. That's, um, I had fun. Yeah, I bet. Um, 
So if we if we start thinking about kind of the the impact that these design systems have, or the impact of the kind of work that we enjoy doing today, like you mentioned it being Greg, you mentioned it about being um, a better outcome for the user, um, and I, I think we can all agree that's something that we want. Mm-hmm. Uh, what other kind of benefits do we see uh, of design systems? Yeah, just design systems and and kind of the the. I guess the thinking around how we're doing work today over how we used to do work. Like I think of it almost as a sea change, like when Ethan released or I guess announced this whole concept of responsive like 10 years ago, like that changed the way people thought about the work that we've done. And it feels kind of like design systems have done that within the industry to a point, but it's, it's making more of a business impact than just changing from uh, big screen to small screen. Right. Yeah. It's a more measurable impact. Yeah, like I think, you know, um, it's been around for a while, but it's really hot in the industry right now as a topic because because of the nature of responsive design and mobile devices and all these different platforms and uh, considerations that we didn't have before. Like you, I remember just all I cared about was a 640 by 480 website, and that's all I needed to think about. Um, and now you have to think about so, so much more than that. And, um, you know, for the most part, I think everybody's picked up on that and everyone's talking about it, but there's still so many companies out there that are just realizing like, Oh crap, like this, this seems like important. Everyone's talking about it. Maybe I should be doing this too. Um, and you know, it's, it's definitely changing how, not only how we design, but it's changing how we build. It's changing, uh, just pretty much everything. And I, you know, one of the things I think is cool is because so many people are sharing their tools and their learnings. Um, we're all kind of making each other like better designers, uh, in the community. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's been, it's been pretty exciting. <laughs> so, um, are design systems, the new web standards? Seems that way. <laughs> because we all fought the web standards battle pretty hard for a while. Yeah. yeah. And it seems like we didn't win. So, <laughs> Well, yeah, like with the whole CSS and inline styles and all that. I do feel like in some ways we've taken a step back, but design systems are pushing things forward in a way where like you can forgive those things, which I still yeah. personally agree with, but I get why people well, do that. Well, so you know, like there are certain <laughs> tools or a certain tool that's like 30% of the internet that yeah. still doesn't ap- adhere to any of those kind of concepts or or, or standards. But yet people use it every day and it seems to help them accomplish what they want to accomplish. Mm-hmm. So for us as being the people who are uh, maybe the quote unquote design leaders, the people who are supposed to be deciding how people build stuff going forward, how can we um, maybe make sure that more stuff is built the quote unquote right way? Well, I think you yeah, we, we may have, well, I wouldn't say we lost the, the war and web standards because I want to go back to that for a second. I, I think we were doing pretty good. And then things like iPhones started to come out, right? And we started getting more yeah, and sure, more screens. Um, yeah. And especially, uh, you know, the do you make web apps or do you use uh, native applications, right? And I think it's at that point where I wouldn't say we, the, we lost the war. I think it just got bigger. You know, and and multi-platform, multi-plane, yeah, more complex, uh, yeah. just way more complex. Now, I think design systems. You know, as we get into that, that's the way where we can rein some of that 
uh, uh, complexity back in, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think we'll we'll start seeing some of the benefits of uh, that we saw moving from you know old HTML uh, in embedded inline styles to more something that web standards compliant. I think we'll start seeing more of that through design systems. You know, that's going to help us in, with that. Do you think that um, we'll ever get the major manufacturers and vendors on board with a common standard, like a Samsung and Apple ever going to agree on this is how we're going to render things? I'm not without a Jeffrey Zeldman, <laughs> you know, not without, and, and I don't, it, you know, wasn't just he that, that uh, I think he, he led that challenge and I know there were other yeah. people involved, but not without uh, a guy like him leading a visionary team to go to all those manufacturers and say, Hey, listen, uh, you know, we're, we're losing out on efficiency. Your costs are, are our costs are, are higher, right? If we're having to design for all these proprietary systems. Um, you know, I, th- I think that's where that, that's how we got to where we were back in the early 2000s is because of, uh, guys like Zeldman and because of organizations like Wasp. Yeah. No, I completely agree. I'm just curious. Um, wasn't that part of the W3C's job? Well, <laughs> I don't want to throw anybody under the bus. I'm just curious because what I, what I see is there's always these ebbs and flows, expansions, contractions, like everything repeats itself. And I'm starting to see a pattern of, and I don't know if it's attached to years or some kind of trends, but I see this pattern, like what we're doing now feels a lot like what we were doing in the early 2000s. Yeah. And I don't want it to kind of fizzle out and end up having this other thing, which might be voice, right? The, the iPhone, to your point, about something changed the game. Mm-hmm. And we, the, the systems weren't in place um, to, to really stay ahead of that. And so I'm curious, like, what, how can we try to mitigate that risk for making sure that we keep the humans in mind as, as we're designing for things to get around some of these difficulties that we had in that last sea change? It's funny because when I look at a lot of the stuff that's going on there from within the standards community, um, there is a lot of movement um, and actually a lot of consensus in working across um, the different platforms to create some consistency. Uh, I think ultimately, if you want a consistent platform, you need a monoculture. You need one winner. Um, and I think what we've seen with that is that when you have one winner, you have stasis, you have a lack of movement, you have a lack of innovation mm-hmm. because they can sit uh, on that and they can now, like having won the war, can now relax and focus their energies on other things. Um, and I think, you know, when we, we look at, you know, before Firefox came around, um, that IE did not evolve, right? It took them years to go from IE6 to IE7, mm-hmm. and it required competition to force that movement. Uh, now, keep in mind, like I, I remember when IE6 came out, it felt like a fantastic browser. <laughs> right? It did. Um, yeah. And I think a lot of people forget that. You know, People that want to deride Microsoft and, and deride IE, it was a good browser. It was better than everything out there. And I think you know when people look at, okay, let's say Chrome right now and, and its expanse across platforms, if we had a single rendering platform, people would stop working on it because they no longer have an incentive except to solve their own problems uh, to build on top of that platform. So you know when we look at the standards culture right now, 
I'm okay with the way things have been evolving. Um, I think, you know, going back to native and that concern, that's a little bit more difficult because that's, uh, we, we don't really have a window into, um, that world and the new features that are coming out and whether or not those solve our problems well, if we're trying to create a cross platform ecosystem, right? Like right now, if we like, for example, service workers, well, that's a standard. Now it's just a matter of us advocating to each of the companies. And one of the things that I've been hearing over and over again from developer, uh, browser developers is they basically need to be shouted at. Uh, they need to be shouted at by a lot of people to know what they should be working on um, because they don't know what to prioritize. There, there's a million things that they could work on. Um, yeah, I, sure. I, I talked to a guy from Microsoft who said they could stop working on new features right now and just keep all their developers working on bug fixes for months. Mm-hmm. Right? I'm sure. Right? And the thing is, is that nobody would like that. No, nobody would care. Um, they'd be like, well, I, I want this new feature. And so they are busy trying to figure out, well, do we work on this or do we work on that? And they rely on the community to say, work on this first. Sure. Um, so, and, and that's what the W3 can't do per se. Yeah. Right. The W3, uh, they do, they are advocating. They, they do work with those manufacturers, those companies, but at a different level, you know, almost mm-hmm. like at a United Nations level. Right. But you can't get anything done if you just let the, in this case, the government try to do the job for you, right? The, the, the community has to be there. And, and that's how we uh, made a lot of progress uh, back in the early 2000s with, with standards, right? And so uh, if, if the concern is whether we're, we have a, a war to wage today or we need to get in front of it to your point earlier about uh, audio UI or, you know, different devices, um, then, then the community has to stand up and stand shoulder to shoulder with the W3 and, and different governing bodies to help make sure that, uh, these, uh, large companies are, are going to play fair. Yeah. And, and to do the right thing in the best interest of, of the users. Right. Exactly. Right. Yep. Yeah. yeah. So it feels kind of like Tron, right? We, we fight for the user. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, I will say, I feel like there's been some progress there as well because it's now, I think, m- more, I see and I read more about company cultures that are trying to be user centered, user focused. And it may not necessarily be human centered design type of a point of view. Um, but I think everybody's seen that if you talk to users and, and make what they want, you're going to sell a lot of things. You know, I think we have companies like Apple to thank for that. Um, yeah. you know, and, and their competitors are kind of scratching their heads and Blackberry's kind of wondering, Oh God, why? And, and, uh, you know, it's just, they're still around. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, they just, uh, launched a new phone. that looks a lot like, uh, the phones that we all have. Um, but I mean, I, I think that that's more that's of, amazing. yeah, it's just, uh, you, you mentioned PNLs earlier and I think everybody can agree that when you focus on users, typically your PNL is going to look a lot better. Yeah. I think that it's easy to see that in retrospect. True. It's, I think it's hard for a lot of organizations to see focusing on users as the way out of what might be a bad situation for them. It's mm. a good point. Well, that's why we have companies that go away and, you know, fail and sure. Yeah. I mean, and that's, that's, you know, that's life, right? That's just part of it. Some organisms live and some don't. Mm. Um, so I, I'm just curious 
part of what I do in in my daily work is think about how we can use the skills that we have to help improve a business. And so I've been thinking about that kind of at a higher levels, like how can we as as an industry collectively do a better job of helping businesses understand the importance of what we're doing and to to make both qualitative and quantitative uh, decisions about, hey, this is actually something that could help us make more money mm-hmm. because the capitalists will only care about that, mm-hmm. right? The MBAs only care about that. Spreadsheet jockeys are just going to look at it as a number. So how do we help them understand the importance of talking to users and building things that users actually want to use? I. Uh- well, I, you know, it's it's a it's a hard thing to do, but if you get those folks in the room with their users, and you get them talking, um, I've I've seen uh, and I've heard stories of you know engineers, product managers, even people who had a pretty hard line form opinion uh, about the direction of a product or a service, and they got in the room with the users, and users started telling them what they did liked and what they didn't like, what they needed, what they wanted. And, uh, that converts people pretty quickly. You know, yeah. when, when you go in with your, you know, I've been in the industry for 20, 30 years opinion and you find out that, Hey, the designers actually know what they're talking. Like they're raising their hand and they're jumping up and down. They're saying we're doing the wrong thing. And, and, uh, you know, that's actually probably something we still need to fix, right? Is, is kind of, even though we're quote the voice of the user in some cases, we're still not being listened to. Right. But you take and put those folks, what can designers do? They can get the users and the naysayers in the same room, right? I mean, that that's as simple as that. Yeah, and kind of act as a like a, a therapist. Yeah, pretty right? much. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's, it's building empathy. It's kind of what it comes back to. Yeah. Um, I, I heard a story about a major airline here in the U.S. who needed to change the way that they did things because they, they saw that they were suffering in the marketplace. And so they made all of their uh, board members and senior leadership fly commercial for a month everywhere they went. It's like just fly commercial for a month because they're all on private jets all the time, right? They don't know what commercial air travel is like. Check your bags. Mm-hmm. Wait at baggage claim. Mm-hmm. Go through the whole thing. Yeah, put your overhead in the bin. Do all of it just like a regular traveler. And it completely changed the way that they looked at things. Mm-hmm. And the airline is now doing much better than it was some some years ago because they started understanding and empathizing the struggles that their customers had. Mm-hmm. Right. So is, I mean, is it something that's that severe, that rash Just like, no, you have to use the product for a month and suffer along with all the other people. I think you should. I think dog fooding is like one of the most important things that you can do as a product team. Um, you know, when, when I was at GitHub, when I was at engine yard, even Salesforce, like, Pretty much everywhere I was at, we try to dog food our own stuff, and it it brings up all those issues. It surfaces all the pain points that other people are feeling. Like I think it's it's you know as much as you can, it, it's important. Yeah, and maybe if you can't convince the executives to use their own product, <laughs> yeah, maybe that's a telltale sign too. It's like, Ugh, yeah, I don't want to use that. Well, <laughs> right, maybe that's the problem, right? Right. Well, that's, you mentioned uh, empathy for the users. I think t- uh, I've been seeing too. It's also having empathy for the people that you're working with. Yes. Right. Um, and I'm seeing more and more that the role of the design leader, uh, well, is is taking on more responsibility of getting the right people in the room, whether it's you know with the user or not. But but I find that um, 
I mean, incredibly, I find that there's some people, maybe a lot of people out there that kind of lack this vision that seems really clear to me of, you know, why this isn't working or isn't working well. It's because these people are not talking to each other. Right. Right. Um, and or waterfall process. But usually it's because of communication. Uh, and it's something I'm even finding in my, my recent uh, work is uh, there are folks who've just been working together for so long they don't necessarily see the ruts that they're in, right? Uh, right. Whereas I feel like from a, a designer point of view, the Jared Spool designer point of view, um, uh, you can kind of kind of see clearly now how I need to design the business, right? Design the organization so that it can design things that people right. want it to. Yeah. yeah. I had um, um, a little bit of time to chat with Adam Connor recently. Uh, about some of his work and he's designing organizations. That's exactly what he does from a designer's perspective. Mm -hmm. And he was saying that when he goes into an organization that thinks they have their act together and he can point out a couple of little things, he said, it's kind of like going to um, like an athletic coach. Mm. It's like you need somebody there to show you the pieces that you're doing wrong. Mm -hmm. Right. So I'm wondering how much should we as an industry maybe start focusing on those types of organizational behavioral pieces of, of communication. Like how should, how much should we train designers to be therapists? Uh, well, I think you got to be a therapist to some degree before you can really develop true empathy. Sure. Right? Um, and, and even to do that, some of that type of research. Uh, so I think that all designers need to be a, a, aware that sometimes problems stem not from the fact that, uh, you know, a ratio of design to development may be off or, um, you know, be whatever remote working. You know, like there's a lot of reasons why, why organizations don't function well, but a lot of that has to just do with communication, right. And having the right people in the room. So something as simple as that, I think all designers should focus and, and be conscious of and to develop those people skills, soft skills that allows them to, um, not just walk into a room and say, you're doing it wrong, but to be able to uh, rally folks and get them, you know, to, to see the, the light and to kind of come together. As far as like that being the full-time function, I think that's, that's likely going to be a subset of design eventually. You know, if you yeah. take like a Harvard Business Review point of, point of view on that, um, that would be what they would consider a, a designer, you know, somebody who's, who's uh, reshaping businesses uh, in different ways. Yeah. And that becomes more of a design leadership function. Yep. Rather than the tactical moving things around on the screen. Yeah. Person. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, I don't know if it's just cause like, I mean, I spent a number of years uh, working from home by myself. Like, you know, I, I worked freelance and, um, and then to go from that into a large company and then realize that a lot of the work in big teams is around communication. Like it has nothing to do with like putting pen to paper or, uh, you know, pixels to browsers. It's, it's all about communication. You're trying to manage those relationships. And, um, you know, we, we often hear about office politics. Um, and, and sometimes it does feel political, but, Ultimately, those those politics is built on a layer of communication. You're trying to rally people behind an idea. You're trying to pitch them on a direction that you're trying to go in. Um, you know, whether you're a designer or developer or whatever, that you know you feel like you have an answer to 
this question. Um, and now you need to convince people that it is the right answer. Um, and so a lot of that is, you know, having empathy. Um, so, I mean, I'm empathetic, so therefore, uh, I have the right answer. No, like you, <laughs> you, you need data, right? Like data, um, uh, and not to say data driven, but like uh, you have a hypothesis on how I think this problem should be solved. You talk to users who have identified this as a problem. You've talked to users who have identified this as a solution. You've, um, you know, all these things, and now you're communicating this to, uh, the people higher up to the people lower down to say like, this is the direction we should be going in. And here are all the reasons why. And, and that a lot of that is communication, right? It has nothing to do with the actual building process. It's all about communication. And I think I've realized as I got older, just how much of building a product, uh, is about communication. Yeah, I completely agree. Well, that's so to jump in on that, um, one of the things I had to teach my design teams at IBM was when you are uh, presenting your work and your findings, uh, half this is the information that you, you gathered. The other is a sales pitch, right? You got to remind, remind people why this is important, um, why they need to get on board, how it could it, uh, have an impact on, on a, a bottom line P and L, whatever. Uh, but that was new to them. You know, like they, uh, when I went in, in the early days and they would present their design, it was fairly standard of, you know, we have 30 screens to take you through. And it's like, no one's going to sit through that, right? We need to take a look at the, the highlights of an experience, the work that went behind it, the validation from the users, you know, uh, that's, you know, going back to what we were talking about earlier, those skills are, are also something that designers need to know because whether they're freelancing or working internal, at some point they're going to have to sell their work. And it's less about the, as Montero would call it, the real estate tour, right? The, uh, let me show you, let me talk you through the design right. as opposed to let me talk you through the experience, the justification and the validation for it. Right. Right. Yeah, I, I like that that concept of the real estate tours, like walking people through just a bunch of stuff, kind of, <laughs> you know, just as a matter of um, kind of procedure, rather than focusing on the outcome that this thing that you've built is supposed to. Yeah, because that's what the spreadsheet guys want, right? right? Yeah. Bottom line, what's what's this going to do? Yep. Um, and and the rest they'll they'll come along for the ride if you make an in interesting presentation. Yeah. Yeah. And how are we going to measure it? Right. Yep. And I think that, uh, you know, maybe talking to designers uh, who are trying to get a job, right, like looking at resumes. I've looked at so many resumes, and often they're about the real estate tour, when right. really it should be about the incomes, like, or the incomes, the outcomes. Tell me about how you're going to make an impact on this team. Um, you know, it's very much the same thing, right? You're, you're trying to sell me on something, mm -hmm. um, showing me that this design happens to be blue and yellow and was a two page design doesn't help me. Or it used some specific technology. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, you know, that, that's great. You, you, you learned React. Congratulations. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, next week we're all going to be working on something else. So, right. uh, yeah. yeah, people that it, it's funny that so many people focus on the tools. Uh, and it's like, that's, that's just part of the job. That's not, that's not the important part. Like right? how many it's, resumes have you seen with like bar graphs with like my skill level is like an eight. Oh yeah. I, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I actually talked to the recruiting team at IBM about that just because, you know, I had my opinion, but I thought, Hey, you the recruiter, right? When you see that, what does it mean to you? 
And uh, they all said, we don't even look at it. it it's, it's just, it, it doesn't. It's just noise. It's just, yeah. It's yeah. Not, what does an eight mean? Photoshop eight. Right. Right. What is eight, eight well, of what? If you like, were going to hire um, a craftsman to build a kitchen or to, to, you know, a sculpture or something, right. you're like, well, do you use the Stanley chisels or, <laughs> or are right. you, are you more of a craftsman guy? And are you right. an eight as a right. craftsman are, or are you like, more of like a nine? Yeah. How would you rate your um, planing? Like, yeah, yeah, sixty-seven percent. It's like it's it's about the outcome. It's not about how you get there necessarily. Yeah, I think that's just a misinterpretation of, uh, you know, beginner, adva- intermediate, advanced, and and trying to come up with a, uh, you know, so, some way to um, uh, put numbers to that. Well, I think the recruiters drove that in the early two thousands when they were looking for people who had specific skills to fit a hole because sure. they're trying to put somebody in a hole at a company. Right. Here's the box I need somebody to fit into. Right. This is the shape of that box. You need to find somebody who's that shape. Mm-hmm. And we still see that now. Like you see, you know, these job descriptions with a whole list of, you know, here are the skill sets that you need. Right. Uh, likewise, you know, you look at a, a lot of um, training uh, companies, colleges, universities, where a lot of their um, curriculum is around the tools as well. Like mm-hmm. you take our course, you will learn these skills and they will match to these resumes or, or to right. these job descriptions because they also have those skills. Right. And therefore that's how you get a job. Um, but in reality, from a, from a hiring perspective, like when you've got a thousand resumes and they all have the same skills, how do you differentiate? Like, how do I know that you're going to be able to solve a problem and how do I know you're going to be able to do it today? And how do I know you're going to be able to do it six months from now? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Marty talked about this. He did a, a, a keynote at a conference last week about um, he's working with a school, I think, in D.C., working with designers. And it's, uh, uh, air quote, portfolio day. Right. Let's see what you can do. And all of these designers are trying to convince everyone that they're different and they've got this new approach and they all show up with the same black portfolio mm-hmm. and they open it up and they walk you through their work. And he's like, you're, but you're all doing the exact same thing. Right. Yeah. You used pink and you used orange, right? Who cares? Right. Oh, Helvetica. Nice. It's like, that's not what it's all about. So he wants to see the person that shows up with no portfolio and says, oh, well, let's see what you can do. All right. Give me a whiteboard. I'll mm-hmm. do it right now. Right. I'll do it right now in front of you. Yeah. Right. That's kind of the, the difference. And we just, I don't think we're training people for that. No, 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 no. And it, it'll be some time before they do. Right. Um, Hopefully just, not. Yeah. I mean, how long did it take for schools to start teaching web standards? Um, and, and making do, that up. Do they teach web standards now? <clears throat> I would hope so. Right. I mean, but, I mean it's to it's, a point, but. Yeah. yeah, I mean, obviously, it's going to depend on the school, right? Some are, some aren't. Um, I, I've uh, been on a curriculum uh, team for um, college in Ottawa, where I live, and um, definitely, like, you know, these are the things you need to focus on, and I, I know the teaching staff there, and I know that, uh, you know, those are the things that they, they care about, um, and it's it's obviously going to depend on the, the, the teachers and the people that b- build the curriculum for the school. Uh, but there's plenty of schools out there that are definitely focused on those things, but of course, uh, it took a while for them to realize that these were, uh, you know, web standards were something that were important. Just like I think it took a long time for the industry to realize that web standards were important. Right, right. Which kind of brings me back to that that point I raised earlier about we're in that inflection point again. So how do we maybe 
um, inject more of what's happening in industry now with what's in education and get that to line up so it continues or kind of powers through whatever that next massive change in the way we interact with these devices is. Well, you, you, I mean, just like you have to uh, establish priorities in, in products and services, whatnot. Uh, we just have to go find those schools that are willing to listen and more importantly, who can change their curriculum relatively quickly. Right. So that's part of the part of the, part of the problem too, is some institutions just can't go make changes to curriculum without having to go through a review board and, um, you know, approval process and all this kind of stuff. Right. So, um, it's, you know, if you find those institutions that can make those changes, uh, and, and the rest of the education world sees the, the benefit and the outcome of that, you know, that that's how you kind of move the mountain there. It, it's also kind of a, about aligning incentives because we have to remember schools, most of them are for-profit companies, mm-hmm. right? And even the ones that aren't actually are. And they're measured by placing graduates and graduates getting good jobs. So to the point about, you know, schools are training people with a list of skills so that they can go line up with some jobs. You know, it's kind of a chicken and egg problem, it seems like. Yep. Yeah. And I think the, the other thing with, with schools, like you think of um, a, a program that has a two or three year curriculum already laid out. Um, so you're, you're getting people into this program with a curriculum that's already defined for the next two to three years. Right. Um, you know, how are we building things now differently than we were three years ago? You know, that these schools are, and not only that, like, okay, you're, you're, they're starting the curriculum. What about all the time building the curriculum and advertising that curriculum? Now you're looking at four to five years, um, within that timeline. Our industry changes way too fast for most of these longer pro- uh, programs, you know, at the sort of college or university level. I think that, um, you know, that was sort of the draw of code schools, right? Like right. Iron Yard and stuff like that, where they were able to move faster. Um, I, I think it's yet to be seen whether or not they can move faster and produce um, uh, people that can integrate faster into our workflows. Yeah, I think that's fair. So we've covered a lot of ground and um, we've got a lot of other things to do this weekend. So a lot of bottles that need a lot of bottles that that need, need, that need some attention. Right. Yeah. Um, So kind of in closing, what would each of you at the point that you are in your career now go back and tell early career beginner you about uh, how to navigate what you're doing. Uh, and I would probably, I'd probably say to take more chances. Um, I come from a small town where, uh, you know, the person who lives, what is it? 50 miles away from you is smarter than you. Right. Just because of the, uh, uh, just cause they're not from the same town. Right. And, um, it's taken me a while, but I've learned that a lot of people that are in the job above you are there for the most part, because they, they said yes, or, or that they, they pushed to get there. Right. Um, but they're not necessarily that much better than, than you are, or even in some cases, no more than you. Right. It's just the fact that they just, um, they, they stepped forward and, uh, and took it. So just take more chances and, and go for it. Reach, for, more, reach take, for the brass ring is kind of thing. And- yeah. But all along the way, I mean, you, you need to know, what you're talking about. So you can't just, 
keep taking risks. You have to continue to learn, you know, educate yourself. Um, but, uh, yeah, step forward. Snook. Uh, it's funny cause I, uh, in a lot of ways feel like I still don't know what the hell I'm doing right now. So, uh, to, to advise my younger self, uh, what to do. Um, it's called I'm, imposter syndrome. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I look at my career and I, I don't, maybe I took chances. I don't know. I've never really felt like I've had to make huge leaps when I go from, from job to job. I didn't feel like I was, um, necessarily sacrificing myself. And that's why I feel like in a lot of ways I've been really lucky. Now at the same time, um, when I think of sort of what has contributed to that success, a lot of it is networking community. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, the, the jobs that I've had. So I, I worked, um, my first job was at a web agency in Ottawa, mostly doing work for the government. And I really lucked out in getting that job. Um, I actually took a last minute, um, vacation from retail, this retail job that I was working to work a two week contract at this web development company, uh, just to get my foot in the door. I just felt like, I'm going to work this two week contract, show them what I can do. Uh, I did my two weeks, went back to the retail job, uh, actually got demoted at the retail job. I was a manager and they're like, hmm, that last minute thing, that wasn't really good. So <laughs> that's not management material. That's not management <laughs> material. And, and, and so I, 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 I mean, yeah, I took that chance at that particular time. Uh, I, I didn't go down a pay grade, so I was still getting paid the same. So I didn't feel like I necessarily lost anything. Um, but uh, sure enough, a month later, uh, that that company actually called me up and was like, "Yeah, we we love the work you were doing, uh, so we'd love to bring you in full time." And so, yeah, that that was that chance um, that I took. But then since then, it was all like the job after that was because um, the salesperson jumped ship from the company I was working for and hired me at the new place. Um, I went freelance because um, I was in a, a group called Nine Rules at the time. It was like this blog network. Oh, man. Yeah, I know. <laughs> wow. Uh, but the thing is, is that because of that community, Dust I, that one off. I, <laughs> I, I got a contract, right? Like this, suddenly I had work um, as a freelancer that could sustain me. Um, that my job at Yahoo was, again, through. Uh, you know, these people that I had met through blogging, um, had hung out with and got me that connection at Yahoo. Um, the job at Shopify was cause I had kept in touch with, uh, the team there since they were five people. Um, you know, that just being a part of that, the community on these different levels, I've gotten job after job after job. And it never felt like I had to really push myself to get work. Work always just kind of fell on my lap and uh, and i am very grateful for that like i, I don't want to well but i mean but think about the writing that you used to do right uh i mean you were an active participant in the community so you can't just um <laughs> you can't just sit there and say like you know well i job fell on my lap and then this one <laughs> fell on my lap i mean you were a, that's that's true a, you contributed a, a lot uh, yeah you're pretty prolific yeah Okay. Yes. I, I mean, so sure. I've, I saw, I've read some books or read, read some books. I've wrote some books, yeah, uh, yeah, too yeah, yeah. on top of reading them. Uh, I, uh, um, spoke at conferences. I, and, and yeah, the, there is that as well. So, okay, sure. Like contributing stuff to the community, the whole open source thing. Maybe that's cool too. Uh, <laughs> okay. Fair. <laughs> 
Just for the listeners, you know, haven't known you as long as uh, some of us have. Uh, uh, this isn't just some dude who just, you know, had jobs just come to him. You, Yeah, you've put a lot of effort in. Yeah, I guess uh, it, it's seeing the work that a lot of people do. And I, I, there is, you know, when I look at what makes someone successful as not successful, there are a ton of people out there that are doing a ton of work that aren't being successful. Um, sure. And so it, trying to figure out like what is that thing that makes someone uh, get the opportunities that they get. And uh, okay, so one of the things that I've heard is that luck is uh, when opportunity meets preparation. Right. Um, and, and I do believe in that. So when I say that I'm lucky, like, yes, there was preparation, there was the opportunity, mm-hmm. and they just happened to hit at the right time. You know, when, when we look at people in our industry, I, I might look to somebody like Doug Bowman, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, the fact that he happened to get a job at Wired mm-hmm. um, at that time, like, because of that, he was able to enact change and, and become successful beyond that. Um, th- that he was in the right place at the right time based on that preparation. I was doing web stuff since like 94, like Mosaic, you know, before Netscape came out. Mm-hmm. Um, but I never saw it as a job. I didn't realize I could actually have a career at that. I didn't think to get into it yeah. for years. Um, and it took me a while of this thing as a hobby before I realized people are getting paid to do this? Yeah. Wow. Okay, I guess I can try to do that too. And that that was why I took those chances to to try to land a job doing something that I had been doing for fun for, for a number of years. So you would tell your younger self? Do the same thing? You do you. Yeah, go, just, go back in time and go, good job, going. good job, kid. Good job, well good done. Job, Okay, so if, if there if there were uh, what was one thing, just contribute. Like, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, community that point, and contribution. Yeah, right. community yeah. and contribution. Networking is important, um, and I've seen this time and time again. Um, who you know um, often uh, reflects in your career, uh, but people um, might not want to be your friend unless you're like actually contributing something worthwhile. So, um, you know, contributing, being involved in the community um, is going to um, create opportunities. Yeah. And just be a nice guy. Cool. Gina? Uh, there are a few things I think I would say to myself. Uh, don't go to grad school. Uh, that was a waste of time. For all the reasons mentioned earlier. Right? Uh, that was such a waste of time and a waste of six figures of debt that I finally paid off last week. Thank God. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. I basically depleted my 401k to do it, but no, no regrets there. Um, so yeah, don't go to grad school. The other thing I would tell myself um, is to get out while it's good because I have a really bad habit of staying too long and then it gets bad. So when you say get out, do you mean when you see things going sideways? Well, like, like you, you can detect that things are going in a direction that aren't going to be good, but you stick it out anyway because, you know, you just you're comfortable and you don't think it's going to get that bad. And then it does <laughs> and it gets worse than you imagined. <laughs> yeah. Um, talking about, you know, corporate politics and all that stuff. Um, yeah, I just, I've stuck it out a little too long at times. And then I realized like if I had gotten out while I did, I would already be in some other place doing something even better. But instead I just stayed here 
So that's something, you know, like, you know, I stuck it out at grad school longer than I should have and then realized it was a mistake, you know, <laughs> like just lots of stuff like that. Um, and then the other thing is just to speak up more. Like I have a really bad habit of not speaking up more. So like, you know, when I took the job uh, that moved me out to California, I took the first offer they gave me, didn't even negotiate because it seemed okay. <laughs> uh, learned really quick <laughs> moving to the Bay Area. It was not okay. <laughs> Um, you know, like in the workplace, I'll have disagreements, but I just kind of don't want to be disagreeable. So I just stay quiet. And then it turns out that the thing that I could have said at that moment um, would have changed everything and ends up being right. Yeah. So those are like the the few things I would tell myself, like, you know, just speak up, get out while it's good and don't go to grad school. <laughs> All right. Awesome. Well, let's uh, let's end it on that note. Um to each of you, thanks for hanging out and chatting a little bit and sharing some of your insights. And uh, I look forward to hearing this out on the internet. Me too. <laughs> That's it for today. Design Driven is brought to you by Nine Labs, guiding innovators and product teams through executing their vision. Find out how they can help improve your digital products at NineLabs.com. Have comments, questions, or an idea you'd like us to cover? Point your browser to designdriven.biz and click Contact Us at the top of your screen. We'd love to hear from you. Tell your friends and colleagues about the Design Driven Pod. Post on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or send them an email and tell them to go to designdriven.biz or wherever they find their podcasts. Until next time, remember what Thomas Watson, founder of IBM, said. Good design is good business.